I'm going to, my name is Henry, I'm going to be reading from the Bible. Um, if you want to be referring to the Bibles on your seats, uh, we're looking at uh, Matthew 27, it's on page 1006 on the uh, Bibles uh, on your seats. Uh, Matthew 27 from verse 57 to chapter 28, verse 10 page 106 in your Bibles on your seats. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in a rock and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away mary magdalene and the other mary were there sitting opposite the tomb the next day that is after the day of preparation the chief priests and the pharisees gathered before pilate and said sir we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go. And tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me.
Good morning, everyone. How are we all? If I haven't met you before, my name's Kurt. I'm the Minister of St. Matt's, and it's a pleasure to have you along this here Easter Sunday. Um, we are going to be looking at the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection account of Jesus. Um, I'm going to be praying and looking at that part of the Bible together. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for this chance this morning to reflect on, to explore this story of Jesus' resurrection and what it means for us today. Uh, Father, give us, give us wisdom, your wisdom, to know what it's all about. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, I thought everything was on track until four minutes before the service, and then my wife called me at home because she hadn't come down yet, and she was furiously looking for the other set of keys, and she could not find it. And so at three minutes before the service, I jumped in my car, bolted home, gave her a key, and then came back again. And so as a consequence of that, I was stressed. I was stressed. Now, I didn't do that on purpose, uh, but it fits with where I'm starting the talk today, talking about stress. Uh, when you are stressed like that, when you're going through stress or any sort of suffering, some struggle in life, what is your medication of choice, or i.e. your reliever of choice? Uh, is it Netflix? Is it you had a bad day, you get home and you just stream to your heart's content? Is it endless YouTube? Is it hours and hours of Facebook just scrolling through? Uh, is it a good book? You know, you just get absorbed in a lovely story. Is it a bubble bath? I hate baths personally, but maybe you're a bubble bath person. Uh, is it the gym? You go just crunch weights, smash yourself at the gym to get rid of that stress. Maybe it's just a glass of wine. You hit that glass of wine on a Friday night, everything's happy. Uh, maybe it's a walk, a bike ride, or for some of you, maybe it is chocolate. Maybe. Although you're probably not feeling that way. You probably had enough chocolate right now. But a lot of us, it's chocolate, isn't it? See, we all have something, don't we? When we hit the struggles of life, when stress hits, we look for that something to relieve it, to make us feel better, to relieve the pain. And, in, and that instinct of pain relief, of trying to take away the sufferings of our lives actually bleeds into religion as well. Uh, I, I read recently, well actually quite a while ago, in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, about a, Bud a Buddhist ceremony in Thailand uh, where the participant, they come to the ceremony, they lie in a coffin and a white veil is eventually placed over the top of them. Uh, a Buddhist monk chants, uh, chants over them and then the person stands up and makes a wish and leaves. And so this is what happens. The article said this, Participants die ritual deaths to re-emerge cleansed of karmic misfortune, marital strife, financial hardships, irksome follies. You can leave them all behind in the coffin. A police lieutenant is eager to be reborn into a higher rank with more pay. A college student wants some spiritual boost to her desire for weight loss. It's this instinct for pain relief that bleeds into religion and makes religion about how can we help people suffering? How can we deal with suffering? And so for these guys, it's this, it's this ritual death where you leave the, the suffering behind and you come out and things are changed. And so whether it's Netflix, whether it's chocolate, whether it's a fake ritual death, our world is consistently offering us solutions for the problems of our suffering medicines to, to mitigate the effects on our lives. And some are healthier than others. Some are more effective at minimising suffering than others. But what you'll find if you've, ever experienced, if you've ever done any of those things, even chocolate, that it doesn't provide an ultimate solution. It doesn't. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, is Christian faith any different to that? 
Is Christian faith any different to that? Is it any more helpful than chocolate? See, on Good Friday, we started to engage this question, if you weren't with us, we started to engage the question of suffering in our world, the reality that we all, whether we have really intense suffering, whether it's a season of suffering, whether we all are touched by this issue of suffering in our world. And we said to ourselves that suffering can make us think that the God, that God is like an evil ant farmer and we are his ants. And he is up in heaven completely unmoved and removed from the pain of what we're going through. But what we learned on Good Friday was that the ant farmer became an ant. That's, that's the story of the Bible. The ant farmer became an ant. Jesus was God become man, come to die in our place, to take into his very relationship between father and son within God, the suffering and evil and sin of our world. That God did that in order that we might know he cares. He cares about our suffering. That we are not just isolated in the world and he's completely up there, oblivious to our pain, that he has entered in and absorbed it into himself. But, but the question you might have had at the end of Good Friday is, does that really make a difference? Does that really make a difference? Sure, God cares. It's lovely to know that God's up in heaven caring about my suffering right now. But how does that help? Is it, isn't it just like chocolate when you're upset on a Friday night or a glass of wine? Is it, isn't it just like, a, a, you know, when you're going through pain in the past, when they didn't have pain relief and they'd get you a piece of wood to bite on? Is it just a piece of wood that you bite onto? Is that what Christian faith is? While you're going through the struggles of life? And what we see on Easter Sunday is the answer to that question is no. No, it's not just chocolate. And so let me take you through the story. Uh, on Friday, Jesus, the carpenter, stonemason, traveling teacher, uh, healer, he is killed on a Roman crucifix. We know the story well. On that same day, Jesus is buried. And so we read it before in Matthew's account. I'm going to read it again. Matthew's account of Jesus says this, Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he'd cut from the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. All right, so what's happening here? A rich man named Aram, uh, Joseph Marathea, he's kind of like a secret disciple of Jesus. He wasn't willing to come out. He goes to the Roman governor and says, hey, can I have the body of Jesus so that I can give him a burial? Uh, Jesus died as a criminal. So at that point, he had no money, he had nothing. He's, he's, he was going to have a proper burial. And so Joseph says, I'm going to do it. He owns a new tomb. He, it's a cut out of the rock. Uh, Jesus is placed in the tomb and a large stone is rolled in front of it. Okay, so Jesus' body is buried. Then second, Jesus' body was guarded. Verse 62. The next day, that is the, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how th that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So religious leaders, right after the fact, right after they put him into the tomb, because they put him in really, really late Saturday night, 
uh, Friday night, they're really worried that his body might be stolen. So they say, um, so they say to the Roman governor, please put a guard there to protect that tomb because if his body is stolen, his disciples might run around saying, hey, Jesus has risen from the dead when he hasn't. And so the guard, governor orders the guard to be placed on the tomb. Plus it says there that a seal is placed on the rock. And, and that was often a line of clay or, or, or a string that went over the tomb and it was a Roman seal so that if you broke that seal, it was punishable by death. Okay, so serious consequences if you break the seal. Uh, and then you have Roman guards there guarding it whose lives were, were invested in guarding it because if they lost the body, they, they would actually be killed. And so Jesus' body at this stage is not stolen, it is guarded, but by Sunday morning, Jesus' body is gone. So verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. All right, so it's, it's a pretty crazy account. The, the, the women are going to the tomb. Uh, they're going there because his body was put into the tomb so late on Friday night. They didn't have proper time to prepare him for burial. So they go there on Sunday morning to actually take his body out, wrap it in linen, put ointments on it and a whole bunch of different things on his body to prepare the body. He gets there, they get there and they see an angel come down from heaven. He rolls back what would have been a massive stone in front of the tomb and sits on it and he tells the women that Jesus has gone. He tells them that Jesus has risen. Now it sounds a little, well, it sounds massively out there. And to be honest, if that was the end of the story, if that's all we had, if, if Matthew 20, 28 just finished there, and we had just in the Bible a story about an angel coming down and sitting on a rock and uh, there'd be no, no body, the body's gone missing, then that would be, not be enough to say that Jesus rose from the dead. That'd be a, too big a leap. Um, but the accounts give us more than just Jesus' body was missing. Uh, thirdly, it's Jesus' body was seen, it was heard, he was heard and he was touched. So verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Okay, so the women see Jesus. And, and it's not like they, they mistake him for someone else. These are women who had hung around him for three years. They knew his face. They knew his voice. They'd listened to his teaching. And so they go up and it says that they grab him, okay? It's telling us that he's not a ghost. It's not that their hands just go through his body like a ghost or a mirage. Jesus had, to, to these women, Jesus had physically risen from the dead. And so that's what the Bible claims. The Bible claims God became man, died on a cross, and after three days was physically raised from the dead. Now that's a big call, isn't it? It's a massive claim. And the obvious question is, can we trust it? 
can we trust it? Can we trust the accounts that we have here in the Bible, not just in this one here in Matthew, but you have it Mark, Luke and John, you have multiple accounts. Can we trust these accounts of Jesus' resurrection to give us accurate history? And I'm going to suggest that you can. I'll give you four, four reasons why I think that can be trusting. Firstly, what, a, what, a, what could be called the embarrassing truth of the accounts. If you were going to go back into the ancient Near East at the time and you were going to market or make up a story to win people to your new religion, there is two major things you would not include in the story. Okay? First one is, you would not include women as the first witnesses. That is because back then, in a court of law, if your only witness was a woman to a crime, then she could not actually stand as a witness. They, could, they actually didn't believe the words of women. And so, if you were going to make up a story about your leader or teacher rising from the dead, you do not include the women. You, miss that, you scrub that part out, you start with men. Secondly, you would not say your leader had physically risen from the dead. See, it sounds amazing to us. It sounds like that would get a following. You know, he'd get lots of Instagram likes and plenty from, you know, having a physical rise from the dead. But back then, uh, it, it just wouldn't fly. Uh, N.T. Wright, um, he's a historical scholar, says if you look at all the literature of the time, physical resurrection in the literature at the time was considered unthinkable and it was actually considered almost grotesque, disgusting. Uh, the, the, the major people group at that time were the Greeks, and Greek thinking ruled the day. And in Greek thinking, the physical body was considered evil, but the spirit inside us was considered good. And so their vision of the afterlife, the perfect afterlife, was where you lose the evil physical body and you just exist in the, in the spiritual good. And so if you were going to make up a religion to win what was the majority of the world at the time, you would not talk about physical resurrection. Now, even within the Jewish religion, there was only one small group within them that actually believed in physical resurrection. A whole bunch of the majority did not believe in physical resurrection. And so if you wanted to start a religion, don't mention the women and don't talk about physical resurrection. So this is, that, that's what, this is what we call the embarrassing truth of the gospel accounts. It's farcical. No one would make this up. Secondly, the empty tomb. Uh, where did the body go? There, there's no, there's actually, sec, actually secular sources as well as secular sources in the Bible that suggest that the, Bible, the body was gone. There was no recovery of the Bible. If they recovered the Bible, the story would have ended, but they did not. Third, after he rose, he appeared multiple times to multiple people, to different people. He ate meals with people. Uh, a section of the Bible written 1 Corinthians 15 years later suggested that he actually appeared to 500 people at once, those, and some of those who were alive still due, during the writing of that letter. If that was not true, these people could have denied it. Fourth, the change in his disciples and the movement that followed. If you look at the stories of the Bible, the story of the Bible before Jesus, had a group of people, 12 of them, who hung out with him for three years, were committed to his cause, he dies, they scatter, they run away for fear they're going to die as well, and then after something significant happening, and it's the resurrection, after the resurrection, all of a sudden these same people get killed for claiming that he rose from the dead. So something seismic changed to move these guys from guys who are scared of being killed, 
for, tra- for hanging out with Jesus or being associated with Jesus to now being killed for it. Now, there are four, four reasons why I think the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection are convincing. But I'm aware that some people here might, still might, that might, it might be a bridge too far. You feel like that's not enough evidence. And so if that's you this morning, I want to say there's more to it, so please keep exploring. But at the same time, I want to suggest to you that you press pause for a moment on your, on, on your doubt that Jesus rose. And I want you just to walk with, me, walk with me for a little bit to consider what if he did? What are the implications if he rose from the dead? And what we see is, is if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he doesn't just offer a minimization of your suffering and struggle. He actually offers one day an ultimate chance to be com- completely relieved of suffering. And so finally, I just want to finish today with four things that make Jesus better than chocolate. Four things that make Jesus better than chocolate. Number one, Jesus takes our ultimate suffering. Jesus takes our ultimate suffering. So Hebrews 2, it's written after Jesus, reflecting on what Jesus did. It says this, But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, although the sufferings of this world are incredibly significant and massively uh, sad, this is really, really sad. The Bible says the greatest potential that a human being faces is being cut off from the loving presence of a good God. And so the Bible talks about it as not physical death, but spiritual death. It's being cut off from the goodness of God. And the Bible talks, gives it the name hell. But on Good Friday, we saw that as Jesus died on the cross, what he endured on the cross was spiritual suffering. He endured spiritual death, being cut off from the loving presence of his Father. And he did that so that we might not have to. He did that for us. He he swallowed up or he tasted, it said, he he tasted death for everyone. He consumed death for everyone. So that those who put their trust in him, who turn and say, Jesus, I trust what you did on the cross for me, might have their ultimate suffering removed for eternity. So that if you trust in Jesus, even though you will physically die, your spiritual death is removed and instead you have new spiritual life in relationship with God for eternity. Jesus takes our ultimate suffering. Secondly, Jesus is present in our suffering. Jesus is present in our suffering. So Romans 9, I'm going to read to you from verse 38, another letter written after Jesus. It says this, Knowing all these things, so he's talked about a whole bunch, anything that can happen in life, all the terrible struggles of life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the most paralysing things, and I think I even experienced this morning, but one of the most paralysing things about stress, one of the most paralysing things about going through intense suffering is that overwhelming sense of isolation, is it not? You feel like you're locked up 
in your own personal suffering hell and you get stuck in it. But when you have a relationship with Jesus, when you put your trust in Jesus and in the resurrected Jesus, then what takes place is that the Holy Spirit becomes present in your life. That's God, the Holy Spirit, present in your life. And what happens is that you are spiritually bound to Jesus. It says here, so that, so that you, are, you are not separated from the love of God. That is, you're bound up with Jesus in the love of God. Nothing can separate you from his loving presence. And so whether you're having a bad day where your wife leaves, can't find the keys, or whether you're going through the pain of long-term illness, whether you're struggling with the grief of losing someone that you love, whether you feel hopeless in your career because you just feel like you're going backwards, whether you just lost your job and you're entrenched and you have no idea how you're going to pay your bills. For those who put their trust in Jesus, they can know that Jesus is with them in the midst of it. He is present with us, with those who are his in his suffering. Jesus takes our ultimate suffering. Jesus is present in our suffering. Jesus, thirdly, redeems our suffering. Jesus redeems our suffering. So Romans again, it's verse 28. It's going backwards a little bit in Romans. He says, verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. See, what this is saying here is that God is not up in heaven completely uh, powerless when we are going through evil here on earth. That God, in fact, uses the suffering of this life to do a good thing, to bring about a good thing. And he talks about here, to be conformed to the image of his son. That is to be made more like Jesus. And so as we're going through this life and as we're going through suffering, although it's not always recognisable in the middle of suffering, how on earth God is using it, how God is redeeming it. When you have trusted in Jesus, you can know for certain that you are in a process where God is taking the good, the the bad stuff of this world to make you more like Jesus each and every day, to become, in a sense, a, a better human being so that whatever struggle you're going through, you can know God is bringing good. Jesus takes our ultimate suffering. Jesus is present in our suffering. Jesus redeems our suffering. And finally, Jesus will one day end our suffering. Jesus' resurrection, him coming back from the dead, in some sense, it was like a preview to a movie. He gave you a little picture of what one day will happen when he comes back at the end of time and he brings about the restoration of the creation. That we will share his body, we will have a body like his, a resurrected body in the new creation. And so, in order to see, get a little glimpse of what that could be like, you go to the last book of the Bible, that's called the book of Revelation. It's a vision of Jesus returning to this world and restoring a new creation. And it says this in Revelation 21, second last chapter of the Bible. He says, John says, as he's writing, he says in this vision, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. If you are... If you don't know a lot about Christian faith or you don't know, then perhaps you think that the hope for the Christian is, is, is going to this place called heaven, which is um, effectively just a place in the clouds or, you know, just a, or even like a, a non-body place, just a place where you hang around as a spirit and move around. But this image of what Christians are looking forward to, what those who follow Jesus are looking forward to, is not a place in heaven, but it is heaven coming down to earth. The place of God is now with man. The hope for the Christian is a physical new creation. Like this one, but where he says there's no death, there's no pain, there's no crying, there's no suffering, there's no tears. It's this world with all the evil removed from it. See, that's what Revelation 21 is saying. When Jesus comes back, he will come and remove all suffering. The first time he came to absorb the evil of our world and the sin of our world into himself, that we might be saved to one day be, be a part of his new creation where there'll be no suffering. Jesus takes our ultimate suffering on the cross. Jesus is present in our suffering during our life. Jesus actually redeems our suffering to make us more like him in this life. And one day he will end our Suffering, that's better than chocolate, friends. That's better than chocolate. It is the ultimate solution for suffering because it not only means being able to endure the suffering in this life, but it is real hope that in the new creation, all suffering will be gone. That our broken bodies, our broken minds, our broken relationships will be fully restored. And this morning, you have the opportunity to have that. You have the opportunity to have that. If you, if you this morning say, I want to put my trust in Jesus, then you can have that hope of a new creation. You can have that hope of a restored creation with him. You can know his presence in your life now. You can know that you have a right relationship with God and you can have Jesus enter in and transform your life. And so this morning, I want to ask, if you're new with us this morning and you haven't made that decision to put your trust in Jesus, I want to give you the chance to do that. And in one sense, it's completely free. (laughs) It's completely free. You don't have to pay for it. There's nothing you can do to pay for it. Jesus offered it as a free gift. But on the other hand, it actually costs you everything. Because when you say to Jesus... I want to trust you for yourself, to, to, to trust you and what you did on the cross for me. You're actually saying, I'm going to give up my old life without you, and I'm going to live a new life in relationship with you, with you being the one in charge of my life. And so, in fact, that, that, that Buddhist ritual where they go into the coffin and come out of the coffin as this picture of dying and rising again is actually a, it's a Christian image as well. See, the Bible says that when we put our trust in Jesus, we die to our life without him 
and we live a new life. From the moment we say, I trust you, Jesus, we live a new life in relationship with him. A new life that goes for eternity. So if this morning you have not made that choice to put your trust in Jesus, then I'm going to pray a prayer right now that you might want to pray with me. And it's simply this. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Sorry that I have rejected you. Please help me to live the new life in relationship with you. And so I'm going to pray that prayer. And if that is something that you can feel God speaking to you and saying, come home, come home to me, then join me in this prayer. Let me pray. Father, we, we just want to thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to take our ultimate suffering. Father, we are sorry that we have rejected this free gift, that we've rejected you and caused the suffering in this world. Please help us to live with Jesus as the, in charge of our lives and continue to trust what he has done. Help us to trust that he is with us even in the midst of the difficulties of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friend, if that's something you've prayed for the first time, then please come and have a chat to me after service. I'll, I'll hang around. We can chat privately. It doesn't have to be in front of a group of people. But please come and have a chat to me because I'd love to help you on your journey of the new life you have in Jesus. We're going to sing. <laughs>